The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 14, verses 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, Bobby's a pro. We, uh, we made a late change to the scripture passage, and uh, without hesitation, he said, yep, I got it. I'll fix it. I'll, I'll arrange it. And so thank you, Bobby, for, for doing that for us. I really appreciate that. Let me pray before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, allow the words on the page, uh, allow the Holy Spirit to illumine our eyes and open our ears and, uh, and, and open our hearts to be able to uh, comprehend and understand the words uh, that you've put before us, and may we be changed as a result of it. Uh, once again, we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's something about this parable that I think every one of us could identify with. Uh, how many of us, when we plan some sort of gathering, some sort of uh, dinner, you send out invitations, and and you have this low-grade nagging feeling that whispers, what if no one comes? No one's going to come to this. It's just going to be me. It's just going to be me and the dog, me and the dog and the cat. And, And why does it bother us so much? Well, because no one likes rejection. When you break it down to its rudimentary components, that's what it is. You're offering someone something, and they turn you down. But it's not just like something innocuous, like a, a stick of gum or something. Would you like a stick of gum? No, thank you. Okay, fine. What, what's happening here is when it's a party or gathering and you're turned down, it stings a good bit more because you're really offering a piece of yourself. I'd like to offer you me. That's why it stings when we're rejected. This parable tells us something about rejection. Or maybe for some of you, you find yourself on the other side of the story. It's not that you're afraid that no one will show up to your party. It's that maybe 
you've got one too many invites from all the parties, and, and you can't decide which one to pick. Too many parties, not enough yous, right? You, you, you're going to have to decline at least one of them because at least right now you're spread a little too thin. I'm sorry, I can't make it. I've got too much going on. It, it's nothing personal. I, I just can't make it. Now, what you're really saying in that moment is, and again, this is what makes it sting, I can't make it right now because there's something of a higher priority that requires my presence, right? And you know, sometimes that's the case. Inevitably, that's, that's going to be the case. I, I've turned down invitations because, again, I want to go to my son's birthday party. Naturally, I'm going I'm to turn down the invitation, of course. But this parable does tell us something about priorities, tells us something about priorities. Whichever side of the story you find yourself, there's something uncomfortable about all of it. None of us like rejection, and all of us have priorities. So when you come to a parable like this, we recognize the discomfort that's present. You read it, and you can just feel the tension in the room. You can feel the tension in the room because it's challenging what we believe about our priorities and how our priorities factor into what or whom we accept and reject. The parable that Bobby read for us a moment ago is preceded by another parable. It's called the parable of the wedding feast. And in that parable, Jesus tells his listeners, which included the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, the experts of the law, the people who would have been viewed as the really holy people of the day, the people who would have been model citizens of society. So Jesus tells them, basically, hey, when you go to a wedding feast— don't sit at the place of honor because if someone more important than you shows up, you're going to have to give your seat up and then take the walk of shame down to the end of the table and sit there. Instead, he says, start at the end of the table and let the host tell you, hey, come sit over here and sit in the seat of honor. That's what you should do. Gosh, that's uncomfortable. Even that's uncomfortable. You know why? Well, because it would have been the scribes and the Pharisees who were accustomed to taking the seats of honor at the feast. It was just a matter of practice. Ah, the religious leader is here. Of course he's going to sit in the honored seat at the head of the table. And that wasn't said sarcastically. It was expected. But Jesus is saying, hey, here's an idea for you. When you sit down, go take the lowly seat. Come again? What did you say, Jesus? You want, you want me to go sit down there? Do you know who I am? I'm kind of a big deal around here. And you want me to take that seat? So here's the first point of tension. Jesus is asking the religious leaders to take the humble and lowly seat, which they weren't accustomed to doing. And here's the thing. I would bet you anything you want, there was someone in the room at the head of the table shifting his eyes back and forth, wondering, me? Is he talking about me? He wants me to go sit down there? And if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, Jesus then says to the man who invited him to the banquet where they were currently gathered, to the host, he essentially says, hey, when you throw a dinner or a banquet, don't invite the important people of society. Don't invite your rich neighbors who inevitably you'll expect to be repaid somehow. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. They, they can't repay you. But you'll find payment, repayment, at the resurrection of the just. You see, Jesus is making an appeal for humility. It's called, it's a call for self-emptying love. We have a tendency, we have this tendency to view our relationships transactionally. 
I'm going to befriend you because I think you have something that you can offer me. I think, I think it's, in, it's just our sin nature. That's just the way we are. And if we take a good hard look at ourselves, I, I think we find that that's the case more than we realize. How can you benefit me? Oh, like that? Well, let me be your friend. And this is what Jesus is telling the host of the banquet. Don't do that. Don't be like that. Invite the marginalized. and Invite the people who couldn't even dream of paying you back. And when Jesus says this, certainly there's a central truth in that parable that teaches us something of the kingdom of God. All the parables do. But that's not the parable we're looking at today. We're looking at the next one, but I have to bring this up because I want you to feel the tension that's built up in the room when we get to the parable that we're at. In a room full of people who all of society believed were good people, the right people, the spiritual people, the religious people, the important people, Jesus says, this is the wrong group of people in here. And just like before, you can imagine people looking around the room, and there's an awkward silence. Is he talking about me? Are you someone that's bothered by silence? Or, or do you know that person? The one who, who can't handle silence and must fill all the conversational space just to avoid the awkwardness? If you can't think of who that person is, maybe it's you. I do it. I do it too. But either way, Jesus fills the room with awkward silence, and as he makes pointed remarks at most everyone in the room, then the guy who can't handle the awkward silence speaks up. Oh yeah, blessed is everyone, Jesus. Blessed is everyone who eats, who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Everyone, everyone, right, Jesus? Everyone. Did you hear what he said there? Blessed is everyone. Yes, yes, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, yada, 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 but not just them. We all get to enjoy the feast, right? All of us, Jesus, right? Not just the mar marginalized, all of us. All of us. Here's something else we don't like to do. We have trouble taking a look at ourselves and concluding, you know, maybe I'm the one. Maybe I'm the one that's, that's doing the wrong thing here. Maybe it's me. Sometimes I'll, I'll go for a walk, and when I come back from the walk, just a couple times around the block, right, my, my wife will say, you, you smell like outside. <laughs> smell like outside? No, I don't. I, it, I, I didn't even sweat. I just walked around the block. You smell like outside. Why would she say that? Why would she lie about that, right? Has anyone ever been kind enough to tell you, you know, you might need a breath mint? You know what my first impulse is when, when my wife tells me that? You need a breath mint. No, I, do, I don't have bad breath. Just yesterday, this was just yesterday, it happened in our house. My wife sits down to have breakfast. My son had already been up for a little while, so he sits down at the, at the table too. And he, he looks at my wife and he says, why are you chewing so loudly? And she says, I'm not chewing loudly. And I said, you know, the reason you think she's chewing loudly is because you're not eating right now. When you hear someone else chewing, when you're not eating, it's because you're not eating. He goes, no, I don't chew that loud, he says. And he goes to prove it. So he goes into the pantry, watch, and he brings out crackers, crackers. He's going to eat for us to see I don't chew loudly. He chews loudly, <laughs> especially with crackers. You see, we all have this in our sin nature. We have these tendencies. No, it's not me. It's not me. I'm not anybody but me. Anybody but me. This has been the case ever since the garden. Adam, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, it's the woman. <laughs> it's the woman that you gave me. She, you should talk to her. Eve, do you have something to say? It's the serpent, and you made the serpent, right? So, so, 
So the guy who can't handle the silence in the room, it's as if he's screaming out, no, 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 Jesus, please don't say these things. Don't make us feel uncomfortable. Don't make any of us take a look at ourselves. Let's not, let's not antagonize anyone, Jesus. We, we, we all get to enjoy the feast. Don't make us confront ourselves in our own sinful nature. And that's the other thing this, this parable tells us. It requires us to take a good, hard look at ourselves and ask, might this be me? Might this be reflective of my behavior? Could it be me? So all that was just a setup, right? That's the scene heading into the parable. All that is information we need to have before reading what Jesus says next. The guy breaks the awkward silence by saying, yeah, we'll all be there, right, Jesus? And then Jesus responds with this parable. He tells of a parable of a man who gave a great banquet. It says a great banquet. Now, it's easy for us to blow right past that as an insignificant detail of the story, but the truth is it was a big deal to throw a banquet back then. And not only was it a big deal to throw a banquet, but it was a big deal to be invited to a great banquet. And as Jesus details, there were two phases of the invitation. The first was the announcement of the banquet. And because it wasn't just as easy as calling the caterer, quite often the exact time and date of the banquet wasn't even known because it would take days or even weeks to prepare for it. But once all the preparations were made, the feast was ready. Then the second invitation was sent out, come, come let us feast. And again, back then it was poor form and even offensive to turn down the first invitation to the feast, but to reverse your decision at the second invitation, that wasn't only offensive. In some contexts, it was tantamount to a declaration of war. It was a hateful rejection. Let me start connecting some of the dots for you here. Again, Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who knew the Word of God, the ones who were the experts on the law, the ones who were part of, of, of the Israel, the chosen people of God. God extended to them His people an invitation. I will be your God and you will be my people. And they initially responded, yeah, we're in. We'll come to the feast. But inevitably, they turned their backs on him, and the scribes and the Pharisees are following that form here. Yeah, we'll take your law. We'll even take your chosen status. We like that. But now, at the onset of the feast, the arrival of Christ, we're changing our minds. We're not in after all. Jesus is telling them, you've, you've done a hateful thing here. You said you'd come to the feast, and now you're backing out. Why did they back out? Why are they backing out? Did they have a good reason? Why are they rejecting Jesus? Well, he shines a little bit of light on that in the parable too. Why are the people rejecting the invitation to the banquet? The reasons the people give in the, in the parable seem like fairly legitimate reasons. One guy bought a whole field, right? Surely you can't expect him to, to not go see the field. That's a major investment. He can't say no to that. Or what about the guy who bought a yoke of oxen? Back then, an oxen Oxen were, were, were uh, an ox, and several oxen, right, were arguably the most important farm animal. It was like a tractor or a combine harvester for, uh, for a modern-day farmer. That, too, it seems like a fairly important transaction, doesn't it? That's important stuff. So is this really a hateful rejection? Believe it or not, Jesus is detailing these as lousy excuses. He's saying these are all lousy excuses. They don't hold water. You bought a field without seeing it? This isn't Nashville circa 2021 where you buy something sight unseen, right? You're just going to go see the field now, today, on the day of the feast? Today is the day you got to go see your field. 
Same thing for the oxen. You bought the oxen, you're going to buy them sight unseen. You're saying you did that and now you need to go see them today. Today you got to go see them. Today of all days. Then there's the guy who said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I mean, I get it. There are a number of jokes you could put here. I'm not going to infer any of them. I'm just going to say it's a lousy excuse, okay? These are all not good excuses, none of them. Our priorities, listen to this, our our priorities inform what and who we reject. Our priorities dictate our policies on rejection. Our priorities dictate what we choose to accept and what we choose to reject. Jonathan Edwards talked about this in his book entitled Freedom of the Will. And in that book, he had what is described, or he he articulated what's described as Edwards' law of choice, where he states the will always chooses according to its strongest inclination at the moment. The will always chooses according to its strongest inclination at the moment. Always. Everything we do, we do it because we want most to do in that moment. My kids disagree. I'll I'll sometimes have the privilege of driving my kids to school many mornings, and and I'm not kidding you when I say we need to leave the house by 7.15, and there are days when they are getting out of bed at 7.08, and they manage, yes, I heard it, amen, and they somehow manage to be in the car on time-ish, you know, with just those few minutes, and to say once they get in the car, their disposition is less than enthusiastic. Many, many mornings I get no words from them, no words, no words. They're ready to learn. (laughs) Now, if I were to ask them in that moment, do you want to go to school? What do you think they'd say? I promise you they'd muster up enough energy to speak at least one word, no, right? But here's where Edwards disagrees. They actually do want to go to school. And so you could ask him in that moment, if you don't want to go to school, just don't go. Don't go. Now, assuming you were having this conversation with him later in the day, they would say, well, I have to go because if I don't go, I would suffer whatever consequences my dad has in store for me. Aha! You see? You see, given the choice, you want to go to school. You want to go to school because going to school is preferable to the alternative of not going to school. You did what you most wanted in that moment. You see, in the parable, it's not that the oxen are preventing them from going to the banquet. It's that they really don't want to go to the banquet. They don't see the need for the banquet. Dealing with oxen is preferable to grossly offending the host and walking away from the banquet. We do the things we want to do. With each of these excuses in the parable, the excuse giver was saying, there's something out there on which I place a higher priority. There's something out there I value more. Or, I don't value you enough to even set aside my dealings with oxen. Now, again, Jesus is leveling accusations to the scribes and Pharisees, the experts of the Word. Why would they, of all people, Why would they, of all people, be the ones ones who supposedly know the word the most? Why would they place something at a higher priority than the Lord's banquet? Wouldn't they all want to say, there's nothing more important, nothing. Lord, nothing. I'll, I'll give it all up for you. 
Well, you see, that's the problem. They were all in on attending the great feast until they took one look at Jesus. When they looked at Jesus, they said, well, I've got to go see about some oxen. In other words, this isn't the kingdom of God I expected. In fact, I don't believe this to be the kingdom of God. Believe it or not, the office of Pharisee began with good intention. The intention was to protect the law, to observe the law, to do all the things the Lord asked, but eventually it turned into tasks and checkboxes and new laws to form hedges around the other laws to keep you from breaking those laws. Isn't it a good thing to want to obey the law? Well, yes, absolutely it is, but, but what's, your, what's your motivation for keeping the law? Do you keep the law because you find it lovely? Do you keep the law because you see the character of God in it? Or do you keep the law because you find it to be a means of earning God's approval, then convincing yourself you can do it, then holding other people down because they can't do it as well as you can, and doing a good job at that? That's what the kingdom of God looked like to them. So all this talk about humility is nonsense to them, right? All this talk about self-denying love is not how they imagine the kingdom of God to be built. So they looked at Jesus and thought, Jesus, has He brought the kingdom of God with Him? Forget it. I don't see it. That's not what I envisioned. The guy who broke the awkward, awkward silence, blessed everyone who will eat someday, not today. We will eat bread in the kingdom of God. We'll, we'll see it one day, but not today, Jesus. We'll let you know when we see it. Your perception of the banquet, your perception of the kingdom doesn't match my perception. Therefore, I reject it. I remember... Uh, the first time we took our kids to Disney World, this would have been, what, a dozen years ago. Time flies, right? And we wanted to surprise them. We really wanted to surprise them. Our, our two boys uh, were just like three and five years old, so one night we were going through all the, the nightly rituals of, of, of pajamas and baths and tucking in, bedtime prayers and, and, uh, and reading, and, and it, was, it was the nightly ritual. And, and you know, that sort of stuff takes a while. It's, it's a big effort especially because you're trying to put the kids to bed and the kids want nothing to do with it. We want them to go to bed to keep them on a schedule, but also we wanted to get away from them. <laughs> we wanted to preserve our sanity. You know, the days drag on, but the years fly by, they say. So we went through the whole routine. You know, they're in bed, the lights are out, everyone's tucked in, we start to leave the room, and we say, oh, one more thing. Boys, do you want to go to Disney World? And their eyes opened up really big. And the five-year-old said, well, well, yeah. And the three-year-old looked at us with an excited look that said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but I can tell by my brother's face and your face that I'm supposed to be excited about it. So I'm all in. And then we asked them, when? do you want to go to Disney World? And my older son said, right now. And so we told him, okay, get out of bed and let's get in the car. We're leaving right now. So no more waiting. No more, no more someday we'll be in Disney World. We're getting in the car right now. We're driving to Disney now. Tomorrow you'll be in the park. I'll never forget it. It blew their minds. Ah. 
Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, the Lord's banquet is not some event to be celebrated at the end of time. Someday, he's saying the feast is ready. The feast is ready now, right now. And you're being called to respond now. The religious leaders of the day were not ready to accept the coming of the kingdom, even though the signs and the wonders Jesus performed were right there in front of their eyes. This isn't what I expected, so I reject it. We tend to do the same thing. We think of the kingdom of God as something far away in the distant future. We tend to think that we're just slugging our way through the day, just trying to survive, and one day Jesus will come back, and then the party starts. But the reality is there's kingdom work to be done right now. We're called to respond now. We're called to participate in the kingdom now. We're we're called to reorient our lives right now. But, But this isn't what I expected. This is not what I imagined church to be. I know. I know it's messy. It's messy. It's dysfunctional. It's hard. But we can't check out. We're being called to action right now. John the Baptist was the prophetic voice. He was a prophetic forerunner to to Jesus Christ. When he preached his message to Israel, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here you have to understand, when John the Baptist preached that message, there hadn't been a prophetic voice of God in 400 years. To that point, everything and anything to do with the kingdom of God felt distant and far away. It's all silence. It's only silence. We don't hear God's voice. And John the Baptist breaks that silence and said, it's at hand. It's here. And John the Baptist says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. As R.C. Sproul once said, it's not that the axe is in the barn being sharpened, he says, it's, at the, it's, at the, it's laid at the root. The Lord is about to start swinging, and the axe is going to hit the tree, and the tree that bears no fruit will be cut down. The kingdom of God is upon us, and in Israel, you're not ready. Repent, says John the Baptist. And this is what Jesus says to the dinner hosts and the guests. The feast is about to start. The second invitation, as it were, is here. The kingdom of heaven is here, right before your eyes, and all you're doing is giving mealy-mouthed excuses for why you won't be there. You're going to miss it. Friends, the kingdom of heaven isn't something that one day we'll know, but not right now. Christ is on His throne right now. Right now, Christ is on His throne. And the Holy Spirit occupies His dwelling place right now in the hearts of all believers. We have kingdom access right now. Yes, we still struggle with remaining in indwelling sin, but that's, that sin has been defeated. That sin has been accounted for. Jesus Christ ushered in the kingdom. It's already here, but there's still a not yet component that's yet to be realized. And that's where we can also apply Jesus' parable message to our lives. The religious leaders of the day wouldn't have it. They refused the invitation, the call to come to the feast, but, but Jesus says, okay then. Okay, I'm going to go out to the streets and I'm going to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And then after that, I'm going to go out to the highways and to the hedges to go to the far, I'm going to go to the far corners of the earth and I'll compel them to come in. In other words, God's table of the feast will be full. It will be occupied. Not by the self-righteous, not by the ones who have it all together. His table will be filled by the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame. Do you see yourself as poor, crippled, blind, lame? Before you answer that, think about Jesus and how he's dividing the world here. 
you either have need for Him or you don't. And if you have need for Him, it demands a response. There's a a story in the Old Testament about King David. King David's best friend uh, who died in battle, his name was Jonathan. Jonathan's father was King Saul, the king that preceded David. And you don't don't need to know all that history right now, but for for this moment, what you need to know is, is that it wasn't a smooth transition of power from Saul to David. But because Jonathan, David, Jonathan was David's friend, David asked the question, is there not someone from the house of Saul, Jonathan's father, that I may show the kindness of God to him? And, and there was one. There was one. It was the son of Jonathan whose name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. He was accidentally dropped as an infant, and he was crippled ever since. Then, when King David learned of this son, Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, he summoned for him, bring him to me, he said. Now, what you need to understand here is back then, if the king summoned for you, and you were in the line of the previous king, a previous king where there was a contentious transition of power, if that king summons for you, that's not good news. You were likely being summoned because you were about to lose your life. Moreover, what recourse does Mephibosheth have? What power does he have? He can't run away. He literally can't run. His only hope is mercy, that the king is merciful to him, a powerless, crippled descendant of of Saul. And they placed Mephibosheth before the king. Imagine the fear. Imagine the fear that Mephibosheth had. What, What will he do to me? Instead, the king says, don't be afraid. I will not only show you mercy, I will show you grace. I will show you kindness because of my friend, your father, Jonathan, and I'm going to give you all of Saul's land, and your grandfather's land, and get this, get this, you, Mephibosheth, crippled, helpless Mephibosheth, you shall eat at my table, the king's table, always. Forever you'll eat at my table. Do you know how Mephibosheth responded to that? He said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And that that response rings tough for us right now in the Fesco household. We have, we have a, a dog uh, that is at its, its, its life's end. You know, he's, she's, she's not going to recover. And it's, it's really sad to see her get sicker and sicker by the day. Uh, we've done what we can for her. And she's just, she's just not well. She's not well. So there's been a lot of tears over that. But again, when you look at this dog, when I look at this dog, I see something that is utterly, totally helpless. No power. Nothing to do. What's the dog going to do? What what recourse does the dog have? Well, I need to make some changes, right? I need to start exercising more. I need to change my diet. Can't do it. Can't do it. Utterly, totally dependent on whatever we provide for that dog, whatever we do for that dog. So when Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? You say, me? You want, you want me? You want me at your table forever? Do you know what this response tells me? When, when David told him, you'll eat at my table forever, Mephibosheth didn't stop to think about it. He didn't have to take a minute to see if, if, if this was a good offer after all. Can you imagine Mephibosheth saying, you know what, David, that's a pretty good offer, but I'm going to take, take a few days to compare it to other offers I might get along the way, Right? 
Or even beyond that, can you imagine him saying, you know what, I'm good. I'm good with my current situation. Thanks. No, I can't imagine it. He knows what this means. It means his life is different from this point forward. And whatever he needs to do, however he needs to reorient his life, he'll do it. He knows this is merciful and it's grace upon grace. And you know, maybe you see the parallels, but you and I, we're Mephibosheth. You and I, we're Mephibosheth. We, if not for the mercy of the king, if not for the fact that the son of the king befriended us, we would have no ability, no ability to approach the kingdom, let alone the king's table. The king is holy. We are not. We've been infected by sin's curse. It's crippled us. It's left us blind and lame with no ability to provide for ourselves. Yet the king says, come, come sit at my table. Not because of your religious knowledge or, or, or position in society, but, but simply because the king is good. Simply because the king is good and he extends you mercy on the basis of Christ's work on your behalf. When you realize the extraordinary grace that's been extended to you, the invitation the Lord has given to you to the great banquet and a seat at the table, it not only demands a response, but it demands a reorienting of your life. You have a seat at the king's table, an invitation to the banquet, which says nothing is more important than this. The land that I bought, the oxen, my spouse, family, career, wealth, social standing, nothing is more important than a seat at the banquet. Nothing is better than this, so everything I do, I'll reorient my life around the kingdom. You see, the real tragedy of the parable is not just that those who gave excuses had their priorities out of order, but it was their failure to see their absolute dire need for the banquet, that there's nothing in the world that they need more. The tragedy these scribes and Pharisees is their failure to recognize their need. It's their failure to recognize the fact that they don't have it all figured out. Their righteousness, their goodness, their busyness doesn't buy them favor with God. That's the tragedy, the failure to recognize their need of a Savior. And that's the invitation this parable extends to us. The kingdom of Christ is here. In church, he's told us the feast is ready. There's a place for you. Come have a seat. There's a place for the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, especially, especially for you. Will, will you drop everything so that you can come to the feast? How will you reorient your life? Do you see your life in Christ as the most important thing to do, which all other things must be subservient to? Have you reoriented your life, not, not because you're trying to earn God's favor, but because you have a heart that is overflowing with gratitude that says, of all people, of all people, He gave me a seat at His table, and I'm not going to miss this for anything in the world. Friends, this, this table here before us, this is, this is a table that gives us a foretaste of what's to come, the feast. It reminds us and tells us that the kingdom of God is here, and there's a spot reserved at the table for you. And this table says, here's a taste. Here's, a ta here's an appetizer. You don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss it. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us 
Help us and show us what it looks like to reorient our lives. Help us to understand and see that there's, there's nothing more important than your kingdom. Teach us what that looks like in, in each one of our lives to, to, to make your kingdom our highest priority, causing us to reject anything else that would steer us away. Thank you for seeking us out. Thank you for drawing us in and giving us a seat at your table, for it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.